Today, we are going to continue in our series on the book of 1 John. We're entering into week three now, where we have just been studying this book to see what, what exactly it is that God has for us. And uh, so over the last two weeks, we've made our way through chapter one of 1 John. And I think already we're seeing such great wisdom and, and revelation within and so that means today we're going to turn the page to chapter two, and we're going to see what God has for us in and through that. But I do want to reiterate just a few things that we talked about last week that I think are especially important. Um, as John concludes chapter one, he um, continues to show us the nature and the character of God in some really cool ways. And one of the ways that he did that is by by saying that God is light. He says this simple phrase, and like we talked last week, what he is trying to show us is that this means that God is pure, that he is holy, that he is true, that he is good, that as we look to him, this is the perspective that we should have. Many of us don't have that perspective of him, and so John is trying to get our eyes on what is really true about him, and then he concludes chapter one by saying that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And we talked about how really unbelievable a, a statement that is when we really think about it. Because for you and I, when we mess up and when we fall short, when we sin, we feel such heaviness, right? We feel so much shame and, and so much guilt that just instinctively we think that God is faithful and just to condemn us. He, he is faithful and just to pour out his wrath upon us. That's how we feel instinctively. And what John is telling us is, no, he's faithful and just to forgive us through the work of Jesus Christ. He's trying to get us to come back to him even when we have fallen short. And I love, I love that this is the way that he concludes chapter one. Now, for the record, next week, we're gonna get into some fun topics. We're gonna talk about what John means when he says that it is the last hour. We're gonna talk about what John means when he speaks of the Antichrist. So we've got some fun things to talk about next week. But for today, we are going to begin chapter two, and we're gonna start by reading through the first six verses of this book. And we're gonna primarily hang out in verses three through six. And so you can kind of mark that or highlight that in your Bible. Bibles or your Bible apps and follow along. But I do want to start by just spending a few minutes by talking a little bit about verses one and two at the top of this, because I think John does a really good job of shining a light on who Christ truly is. And if you've been here the last few weeks, you know that one of our objectives with this series is that we would see Christ more clearly. That's what we want in our lives. And I think John does such a great job of enlightening us in this area right out of the gate. So let's go to chapter two. We're gonna start in verse one, follow along with me. John says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. 
This is how John begins chapter two. And even just in these short verses, there's so much content that we could take from this. And in fact, I wish we had more time to just go kind of word for word because there's so much to be learned in this. But there are a few things that I wanna make sure we understand as we read through that. And the first thing is this. Um, John, John puts it this way. He says, I'm, I'm writing this to you so that you don't sin. But if you do, we have an advocate with the Father. Now, if you, go through that too quickly, or maybe you read that in the wrong context, you might misunderstand and think that John is maybe reducing the seriousness of sin in the way that he has written this. Maybe John is saying, well, it doesn't matter if I sin because I I ultimately have Christ, or even I'll just sin and then I'll ask for forgiveness later. Maybe that's what John is saying, but that's not at all what he's doing here. The reason that John is writing it this way It's because you have to remember that at this time in history, and for many of the people that he is in fact writing this to, they are coming from a religious structure that is vastly different than what you and I are used to today. In that, if they messed up, then they had to personally pay for their own wrongdoing. Okay, if, if they fell short in any area of their lives, the punishment fell on their shoulders. Now think about the weight of that, that these people had to carry for generation upon generation. And so you can imagine with me for a moment the difficulty that these apostles had at times with explaining grace in a way that was good news to the reader, but also in a way that didn't lose the seriousness of sin that they were used to. It was kind of a bit of a balancing act initially as they were explaining this message of grace in a way that might be understandable within their context. In fact, the Apostle Paul often ran into the same thing. We go to Romans 6, and this is what he says in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Is that what we should do? Watch his response. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? May may it never be that way. So in no way are these guys trying to be indifferent towards sin or trying to downplay the seriousness of it. What they are really trying to do is explain this amazing news of grace in a way that truly lines up with the character and the nature of of God. I found this quote from Matthew Henry that I thought explained it pretty well. He says this, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, when rightly understood and received, sets the heart against all sin and stops the allowed practice of it. At the same time, it gives blessed relief to the wounded consciences of those who have sinned. It's, it's this balancing act that we see in play. And so John says, don't sin. Okay, don't, don't do that. But if you do, we have a solution. And John actually refers to that solution as an advocate. This is the word that he uses. And this is an important concept for, for us to understand. Again, especially if we're gonna see Christ for who he truly is, because this is clearly who he's speaking of, but this is a very interesting word that he has decided to use. Okay, because this specific Greek word is only used five times in the entire New Testament. Only used five different times. Now, all of them are by the Apostle John, but the interesting part is the other four times that this is used, it's directly applied to the Holy Spirit. This is the only time in Scripture where this term is applied directly to Christ. Now, when it's applied to the Holy Spirit, maybe you've seen this before in your reading, it's most commonly translated as comforter or or helper. 
In other words, this is his role or function to, to help us, to comfort us. And in fact, this is how Jesus himself speaks of the Holy Spirit. But when this word is applied to Christ, it's, it's translated here as advocate because John has in mind a slightly different meaning to this word. Because what he has done here is he's almost turned this into a legal term that refers to someone who advocates on your behalf. Think about that. They, they plead your case. They defend you. They stand by you. This is what John has in mind as he thinks about and speaks of Christ. We have an advocate. That's who Christ is. But then he goes on to say this. Not only is he an advocate, but he's also the propitiation for our sins. Now, maybe you've never heard that word before. It sounds like a really fancy theological term, but it actually has a very simple meaning, and that is to atone or make retribution for. What John is simply saying is that Jesus has atoned for our sins, that he has paid the full price. But here's what's really cool about the way that John has set this up. Again, remember that many in the audience would have been coming from Jewish descent. And so here's what he has done by using these different concepts. He's called their attention back to the old covenant law. Because in the old covenant, there was a process in place where the high priest would advocate on behalf of the people and the sacrifices would serve as the propitiation for their sins. This is for generations what these readers would have understood about this. And so what John is trying to show them is that Jesus Christ has fulfilled each and every one of these things through his work on the cross. No longer do they have to rely upon a high priest. No longer do they have to bring forth sacrifices. Now all they have to do is look to Christ as Lord and Savior of their lives. He, he just continues to point to Christ over and over again. This is who he is. This is what he has done I love that this is the foundation that he is setting. In fact, it's interesting, and maybe you can go back and look into this even more, but we are barely a chapter into John's letter, and we've already seen Jesus described as the word of life, the eternal life, an advocate, and now the propitiation for our sins. Those are four very weighty descriptions as it relates to the person of Christ. And I would, in fact, encourage you to go study that more to really see him for who he is, okay? So with this foundation laid out, as John continues to point us to Christ, we're now gonna get really into the meat of what we need to discuss today. And that begins in verse number three. Follow along with me. He continues this way. He says, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Now he gets into some pretty interesting content here, but I want to take us back to the context that I have mentioned several times throughout this series because John is really using some pretty strong language here at this point in his letter. He's he's calling people liars. He's talking about whether you're truly in Christ or not. He's being quite blunt at this point. But remember, one of the reasons that he's speaking so directly is because as he's writing this letter, there are people going around the region spreading false information about Christ. But let's not forget that. In fact, many of these people are claiming to know a great deal about Christ. 
They're like boasting in their intellect of him, yet they show no evidence of it in their words or through their actions. And so one of the things that John is trying to bring their attention to is that knowledge of God can can sometimes be a pretty tricky thing. Because there is such a thing as knowledge of God that, that is simply intellectual. In other words, it's, it's a head knowledge of him that doesn't reach any deeper or take us any further. There is such a thing as this. And in fact, we see it oftentimes in scripture. We saw it from the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus's day, right? A great deal of knowledge, but really they didn't apply it. We see it now from the false teachers of John's day. This is actually a pretty common thing. But listen, in verse three that we just read, when John speaks of knowing God, he's not talking about a surface level head knowledge of God. He's talking about a knowledge of God, listen, that produces something in our lives. It's a knowledge of God that actually reads deep into your heart and to your soul. That's what he's talking about. Because see, there's a huge difference between knowing God and knowing about God. There's a huge difference between those two things. And I think some of us get confused sometimes because we know about God, right? We've, we've heard about him. We've even read about him. We, we come to church. We'll even listen to worship music on our own time. The problem is we haven't truly come to know him. Like personally and intimately, we don't know God. And the word that John uses here represents so much more than just random knowledge about somebody. Like just as you know your spouse, think about that. Just as you know your kids, just as you know your closest friends, John is trying to show us this is the type of knowledge we need to seek when it comes to God that we would truly, deeply, intimately know him deep within our hearts. And then he says, now this is the type of knowledge that produces something. This is the type of knowledge where something comes forth. And in particular, what comes forth is obedience. Did you catch that? In verse three, let's read it again. It says, by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Do you see the connection? There is an unbreakable relationship between knowing God and obeying God. Those two things come hand in hand. In fact, Alfred Plummer, a 19th century theologian, put it this way. There is only one way of proving to ourselves that we know God, and that is by loving obedience to his will. There's only one proof, and that is, are we willing to obey him? And so if this topic is really that important, if this really does mean that much to our relationship with God and how we walk in that, then I think we need to spend a few minutes to discuss this. And here's where I want to start. I think when we discuss obedience, I think oftentimes it's so much different than you and I think it is on the surface. And the reason I say that is because when we first hear the word obedience, what we immediately think about is like a set of rules that, that tells us, here's what you can do, here's what you can't do. That, that's where our minds immediately go. We think about laws and, and regulations, this structure that we have to adhere to. That's what obedience is. But listen, when scripture speaks of this concept, what it's talking about is faithfully and passionately following Jesus. That's what biblical obedience is. It's abiding in him. It's being a living sacrifice for him. It's, it's following him wherever he takes you. That is obedience. And so when we talk about this within our context, I want it to be clear that we're not so much talking about obeying something as much as we're talking about obeying someone. It's, it's a trusting relationship that we have. It's true submission to him as Lord and savior of our lives. That's what obedience is. 
And so with that in mind, I think there are a few things that we really need to, to better understand in terms of our experience with this and how we can walk in this. And so I wanna give you a few things to consider and to think about. And the first one is this, when it comes to obedience, what you're gonna find is that it always has a direct line to love and joy. This is really good news. Obedience to God always has a direct line to love and to joy. I think the first thing that we should always talk about when it comes to obedience is love, because this is where obedience begins. This is the starting place. We simply will not obey that which we don't love. Can we be honest about it? I mean, think about, think about how stubborn we are. Think about how cynical we are. We simply will not obey somebody that we don't love. It's not gonna happen. And we see this spoken of in many different ways throughout John's writings. And so I, I want to take you back to verse three just one more time because he, he puts it this way. He says, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments, if we keep them. Now his verbiage here is very important because if he wanted to, he could have very easily said, by this we have come to know him if we do his commandments. If he wanted to put it that way, he could have very easily done that. But instead he intentionally says, if we keep them. Now that might sound insignificant on the surface, but it's not because while this word keep does represent observing his commandments, it also represents the idea that we would, that we would like protect them that we would hold them dear to us. That's what John is trying to communicate. So not only are we to follow his commands, but we are to guard them. We're to like count them precious to us. That's what he's talking about. This is the same thing that King David had in mind when he says that he delights in the law of the Lord. It's, it's the same thing, like, like he gets it. Because obedience is not simply doing, it's delighting in what you do because it's coming from a place of love. If you're taking notes, write that down. Obedience is not simply doing, it's delighting in what you do because it's coming from a place of love. And see, this is why Jesus says this in the gospel of John chapter 14. He says simply, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If, if you love me, again, love is always the starting point here. But notice something, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He doesn't say that you must keep them. He doesn't say that you need to keep them. He says that you will because the driving force here is if you truly love Christ, obedience will naturally follow suit. If you truly love Christ, glad submission will naturally be produced in your life. And this is exactly what John has in mind when he says this later in his letter. Let's go to chapter five, verse two. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God, and observe his commandments. See the connection? Love and obedience. But watch what he says in verse three. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments and they are not burdensome. This is what he's saying. If you truly love Christ, you're not burdened. You're not weighed down by your obedience to him. In other words, Christ does not call for begrudging submission from us. That's not what he wants from us. He wants loving obedience to him. That's what he desires. And see, this is now where joy comes into the picture. Because here's the other thing that John is trying to show them. And that is that God's commands are not burdensome because God's commands are not oppressive. Obedience does not equal oppression. And many of us desperately need to understand this. 
We, we think that God's commands are meant to be a restricting force and, and like a harness that keeps us from fun and pleasure in this life. That, that couldn't be further from the truth. It, it's the exact opposite. Listen, he is a good father. He knows better than anybody what joy is and where we can find it, which means his commands are not meant to restrict us from joy, but actually to line us up with it. That's why his commands are there. I've used this analogy before, but, but it helps me with my understanding of this. And that is, I don't tell my three-year-old little daughter not to climb on the couch because I'm trying to be mean to her. I'm not saying that to try to hold her back from anything. I'm trying to protect her so that she can enjoy her life and her experience. And as she grows up, I'm going to teach her about saving money and stewarding what God has given her. Not to hold her back from joy, but to give her long-lasting, sustaining joy in her life. Because listen, I'm out for my daughter's joy. That's what I want for her, which is why I instruct her in this way. And it's the same way with Jesus. That's, that's, that's why he says, don't hate other people. Don't commit adultery. Seek first the kingdom of God. He's not trying to be overbearing. He's not trying to hold us back from anything. He's trying to line us up with joy and satisfaction in our lives. He's, he's, he's a good father. We need to trust him in this way. Obedience will always line us up with love and joy ultimately because that's who God is. That's, that's who he is, and that's how we can most experience him. Now, here's the other thing when it comes to obedience that kind of falls right in line with what I just said, and that is ultimately obedience is, is going to line us up with Christ, okay? In every way and everything in our lives, obedience is gonna line us up with Christ. That's why John says this in verse six, the one who says he abides in him. Now, we're gonna talk about this in a few weeks, few weeks, but to abide inherently means to obey. And we'll see that in the future. But he says, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. This is what John tells them. Now, we're not going to read through this, but if you go on to read the next two scriptures, verses seven and verses eight, what you will see is a very interesting set of scriptures where John explains to his readers that, that these principles and these values that he's laying before them are not new values, okay? In other words, the law has been showing them these concepts for generation upon generation. What is new, on the other hand, is the living example that was laid before us through the life of Christ. So catch this, the law is not new, but the true embodiment of it is new. And so what he's trying to show them is, is rather than gazing at the law and all of the rigorous details within, now they can simply gaze at Christ. Now we get to see him as the ultimate example of how to live and how to act and how to treat one another. And, and so I, I wanna slow things down for a second and, and I wanna talk about this. What does it mean to live like Christ? What does that mean? If we are to walk in the same manner that he did, what does this mean for us? And as we read through scripture, we get quite a bit of information on this topic. First and foremost, we know that Christ was full of love for people around him. We are to walk in the same manner as he walked and he was full of love. He deeply cared for other people. I don't know if you ever thought about it this way, but, but Jesus wasn't hateful. He, he wasn't angry. He wasn't bitter. He wasn't like a prickly person. He was somebody that people wanted to be around. He was somebody that the, the crowds would gather around. That's who he was. And see, I, th I think sometimes we almost take pride in our bad attitude because we think it toughens us up, gives us a hard exterior. Listen, that's not who Jesus was. He was loving. He was caring. Yes, yes, help 
He was full of, of generosity. I mean, do we not see this over and over again in the gospels? Just freely giving to anybody that would come to him, open-handed with everything. Honestly, how are we doing when it comes to reflecting that? I mean, we live in a world where I'm gonna get mine, right? I'm gonna take care of mine. Close-fisted with everything that we have. That's not who Jesus was. He freely gave to the people around him. And you know, one of the most underrated characteristics of Jesus was his humility. He was unbelievably humble. We're talking about the son of God in the flesh. And he was humble. He washed the feet of his disciples. He says that he came to serve, not to be served. Unbelievably humble and gentle. I mean, I've been thinking about this lately. Like, what does it really look like to align ourselves with Christ? What does that look like in our everyday lives? Like, like when my daughter messes up and she's not listening, am I responding as Christ responds to me? Am I responding with love and, and grace and gentleness? Am I doing that? When I see somebody in need, do I have compassion that urges me to stop and to help them and to prioritize them like Jesus would? Or do I keep going to whatever is next on my calendar? What's the truth? When it comes to my marriage, do I love my wife like Christ loves the church? John says we are to walk in the same manner that he walked. Because here's the truth of the matter, guys. And I know that you know this just as well as I do. There's plenty going on in this world that doesn't align with Christ. I mean, we can, we can see plenty of that. You can spend five minutes on Facebook and it's right in your face. There's plenty of hatred, plenty of dissension, plenty of selfishness going around. And I'm telling you right now, if we are not careful, we're gonna find ourselves aligned with those things as opposed to aligned with Christ. So easily we will find ourselves in that current and that flow, caring about what the world cares about, prioritizing what the world prioritizes, completely off track of where we should be as children of God. You know, sometimes I think we talk about how we wanna be like Christ, like it's oh, this cutesy little idea that we have in our mind. That's everything, guys. That's life itself is to be like him. That's why obedience is so important because it lines us up with who he is that we would reflect him, that we would, that we would be loving, that we would be selfless, that we would be generous people of God. And so here's, here's how I wanna end this. Worship team, you can head on up. But here's where I wanna end this. I, I want us to do some serious, and I mean serious self-reflection. I hope you're already doing that, but I wanna lean into this even more. So listen, please give me your attention here. Here's what I want you to ask yourself. What are the ways in my life that I am not aligned with Christ? What are the ways, what are the actions, the words, the thoughts, the perspective that's not aligned with him? Here's another way of asking this. What are the areas where I am delaying obedience? Because it's the same exact thing. It's the same exact thing. Do you truly love the people around you? Or do you find yourself to be angry and bitter, arguing and causing dissension? Like, where, where are you at? Is, is that maybe where you're not aligned with him? Or, or maybe are, are you selfish? You're always out to get your, your own, not caring about other people, not prioritizing other people. Is that maybe where, where you're not aligned? Are, are you a Christ-like spouse? Are you a Christ-like parent? Where are you not aligned? And here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray that God would root those things out of you, that he would replace it with his character, with his nature, 
that the fruit of the Spirit would truly be on display in our lives everywhere we go and everything that we do. We are to walk in the same manner that he walked. And if that's not hitting home to you right now, I just encourage you to go read through the gospels and start highlighting the things that Jesus did, the things that Jesus said, the things that Jesus commanded. And just follow that. Just put that on display in your life. Put your heart in those things. We have to align ourselves with him or else we're gonna find ourselves lost, gonna find ourselves weak and ineffective. Please stand with me. Can we just close our eyes just to to try to focus in right now? Remove all distractions and just, just lean in. And I want you to ask, Holy Spirit, what are you trying to speak into my heart, my life? What are you trying to shine a light on that I'm just missing out? I mean, the truth of the matter is we're all falling short. Holy Spirit, shine a light on those areas, maybe on those blind spots that we didn't even realize were there and replace it with your spirit overflowing. the only thing occupying our heart and our soul would be you. We would always be growing closer to you, that we would always be conformed to your image. Heavenly Father, right now I pray over each individual under the sound of my voice, whether they're in the building or watching online that you would stir in their hearts in only the way that you can. I could stand up here and talk all day long and it would be completely ineffective without you. You're the one that has to speak. You're the one that has to move. And I pray that you would do that right now. That you would light up the areas that we need to be aware of. That you would draw us closer and closer and closer to you. whatever is in our way right now, whatever the barriers are, whatever the obstacles are, I pray that you would just shatter those, that we would have a clear path to you and that we would come running your way. Christ, you are our living hope. Like that's where we wanna run to. That's where we wanna go. That's where we wanna spend our days is with you might set our eyes on you, that we might set our heart on you and truly look to you as our living hope.